As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The Why and How of Defeating Cultural Marxism. A talk by Eric Peacock at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. Good morning, thank you for coming. Um, introductions are meant to be short, but I'm, I guess I'm a closet Anglican, but I spent uh, 30 years or so around charismatic uh, Pentecostal movements. So I guess I'm the token Pentecostal here uh, today. And uh, Can I just say, you know, this kind of cross-pollination within the body of Christ, I think it's very important um, as Pentecostals, we like to think we're part of the church that's growing, but uh, sometimes I feel that we also need to grow up a little bit. And we don't really have a theology of suffering in the Pentecostal movement, uh, and we're going to need to get one, and we're going to need to get one pretty fast. Um, so in our, in our eagerness to rush ahead with the things of the Spirit, there may be some things we've left behind and need to rediscover uh, in the body of Christ. <clears throat> Um, I won't go through my introduction. I have some great slides for you. Unfortunately, they don't work, and that just serves me right for using a Mac. So my apologies for my lack of slides. Um, so I'll just get straight into it. And I'll just say that uh, two years ago, well, I spent some time on the left, as you know. Um, but two years ago, I found the cognitive dissonance between what the left say they care about and what they actually do to be, for me, untenable. And for me, the sheer nastiness and dishonesty of the LGBT campaign was the breaking point. Uh, this sent me on a search for answers, and that search has brought me here. In this talk, I'll show briefly that what's now termed social progressivism comes from cultural Marxism, and that cultural Marxism has a clearly defined program and a well-thought-out intergenerational strategy to destroy Western civilization and the faith that made Western civilization possible. I then want to give four key strategies that I believe will be helpful in turning that around. So, a world without Christianity. Can you all hear me, by the way? All good. A world without Christianity. Well, that's the stated objective of Islam, of communism, and of Fabian socialism. And so we see immediately why the left and Islam are friends when they should be natural enemies. And uh, I find that highly amusing because at some point the two will have to turn on one another because they cannot coexist. Um, it's a matter of straightforward logic if you look at their ideology. What we're taught today is, and what our children are taught, is that the decline of Christianity is a natural consequence of social progress in which societies progress from primitive superstition to capitalism and then eventually to atheistic world socialism. And in this context, the decline of Christianity is natural, inevitable uh, and good. And I don't have my slide for the quote, but never mind. I don't need to expand on that except to say that it's not inevitable Rather, it is the result of a vast conscious effort expended over roughly a hundred years. What we are seeing today is the outcome of a well-thought-out, 
intergenerational strategy to shift the West from its Christian roots and thereby destroy it. And there have been broadly two schools of thought in this endeavour, and I know this will be revision for many of you, but bear with me. Uh, the first, obviously, was revolutionary socialism, which claimed victory in Russia and China in the early 20th century. However, the communist revolution did not succeed in the West. And instead of rising up against their bourgeois oppressors, the working classes of Europe slaughtered one another on the battlefields of World War I, before succumbing to fascism in much of Western and Eastern Europe during capitalism's greatest failure in the 1930s. And this created a philosophical crisis for communism. What had gone wrong? Why had the proletariat in the West not risen up, despite a world war, the Great Depression, and the glorious example of Soviet communism? <clears throat> it was the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci who famously found the answer. The idea that people simply didn't like communism, of course, was unthinkable. <clears throat> the problem was that the culture had for 2,000 years been steeped in Christianity. And this is a quote from Gramsci, and it's really the key quote of this, uh, this lecture. He said, The Western world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2,000 years. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot therefore be overthrown until those roots are cut. But to cut the roots, to change the culture... A long march through the institutions is necessary. Only then will power fall into our laps like ripened fruit. The followers of Gramsci became known as cultural Marxists because they believed that gradual cultural change would, over time, cause the West to become communist or, alternatively, create the conditions necessary for revolution. And those conditions were total social, uh, moral and economic chaos to the extent that life in the West would become unlivable and therefore people would turn to communism as a solution. <clears throat> and in order for that to happen, all the things that make society function must be actually torn down. And here, Marxists understand Christianity a lot better than Christians often do. They understand that Christianity made the West, and so it has to be replaced. So, back to Gramsci, rather than seeing the struggle in economic terms, which is classical Marxism, Gramsci reframed the struggle in social terms. In this mode of thinking, capitalism cannot be overthrown until the social relations which were considered beneficial towards capitalism were overthrown. And this demanded a tearing down of the social order, things like uh, sexual norms, relational norms, <coughs> religious faith, trust in authority, uh, patriotism and national sentiment. And I don't think you have to look at the progressive left for very long to see that all of those things are things that they are now targeting. Gramsci was imprisoned by Mussolini and died not long after. His baton was taken up by the philosophers of what came to be known as the Frankfurt School at Frankfurt University in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, key thinkers included Theodor Adorno, Marx Horkheimer and Herbert Marcuse. Their collective efforts today are known as critical theory. As atheist Jews, their continued existence at Frankfurt became untenable and they moved to California. 
There they laid the groundwork for the cultural revolution of the 1960s in fulfilment of Gramsci's original vision. The significance of this short history is that the social unravelling that took shape as the post-war generation was entering college was not coincidental, it was planned. Today, cultural Marxism is not an odd historic relic, but a very active political movement with many names operating on multiple fronts. Last year, the 10th International Critical Theory Conference took place in Rome. Remember, critical theory is really another term for what the Frankfurt School came up with. So in revision, the violent workers' revolution predicted by Marx didn't happen in the West. Gramsci and his followers thought the cultural change would bring about communism more slowly, uh, whereas others predicted that destabilising Western culture would bring things to such a state of chaos that the communists would then be able to seize power. The term cultural Marxism broadly covers these two options. So I just read you a quote from Herbert McCuse from his essay, Repressive Tolerance. I love that title. And uh, if you put it into a search engine, you can find that essay on the internet. He said, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. It would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda, of deed as well as word. Sounds a lot like some legislation I've come across, um, about which I can't say too much because I work for the government. <clears throat> so strategies of cultural Marxism. Based on the communist writings of the 1920s and 30s, cultural Marxists adopted a number of strategies to demoralise and tear down the whole society. And they include, and this is my list, others have come up with other lists, uh, mass immigration and one-sided race offences to destroy identity and social cohesion, attacking life of nation or race as pathological and criminal, encouraging rebellion against any form of authority except their own, removal of parental authority, destruction of the concept of family as being mother, father and children as a core unit, encouraging promiscuity and aberrant lifestyles, teaching homosexuality and promiscuity to children, promoting drug and alcohol addiction, promoting militant atheism, dumbing down state education, mass censorship, promoting economic dependency on the state. And I think this is quite significant. Dividing society along as many lines as possible, worker against employee, women against men, queer against straight, black against white, this endless dividing of society into smaller and smaller groups and the turning of those groups against one another. Political correctness is a shorthand term for these strategies. Now, for an insight into tactical organisation and strategy, I recommend a book by a guy called Saul Alinsky, who you may have heard of. He wrote a book called Rules for Radicals that was published in 1971. It's available on the internet, I've read it, um, and we'll come back to Alinsky later. Had this agenda been announced publicly to the world at large, it would have been rejected in the 1950s. Marxists therefore adopted an intergenerational strategy focused on capturing the minds of the post-war generation. They presented their agenda as progressive academic theory, which is what the gender fluid people are doing. It's the same strategy. 
Uh, that became known as critical theory because it criticises or deconstructs the existing order. And once that became accepted in Western academia, it made its way into the liberal arts curriculum and then into state schools. Once established in the minds of thought leaders of the post-war generation, it could then inform and animate a raft of social change movements. The Safe Schools Program is the latest manifestation of cultural Marxism in public schools. Program co-founder Ros Ward is on record as stating that, and I quote, the program is not about bullying. She's also on record as stating that gender identity is a product of capitalism. Here's a quote from Ms Ward. We have to control everything to make it fair for everyone. Ms Ward received an honourable mention in the 2016 Annual Report of Equal Opportunity Tasmania. Why have these strategies been effective? Well, clearly they have been. Uh, how could a group of depressive atheist philosophers from Germany have done so much damage so quickly? <clears throat> um, to me, I think the answer is fairly clear, and, and there are really three reasons. Firstly, um, cultural Marxism, or whatever you want to call it, um, succeeds for three reasons. It promises a messianic form of secular salvation. Um, they even had the unholy trinity of Marx, Hegel and Nietzsche. Um, it attracts fanatics. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, it attaches itself to legitimate grievances. And I think this is a point the conservatives often miss. Um, Marxism gained a foot in the door because the establishment church and conservatives of the 50s and 60s were disinterested in or opposed to a number of key social causes, including gay rights, women's rights and workers' rights. Not interestingly, the environmental cause, I have to say. That was actually a conservative cause in that era, and has become an enemy of the conservative movement, which I find quite um, curious in some ways. But that's an aside. Um, the establishment failed to denounce militarism and did not advance a convincing, and I'll say convincing because I'm not interested in who's right and who's wrong, but I'm looking at the social dynamic, a convincing sexual ethic for the post-contraceptive generation. That generation didn't buy the conservative story about sex. Um, and this created space for cultural subversives to attach themselves to legitimate grievances and aspirations and to radicalise them. And having found this strategy to be effective, particularly in the anti-war movement, cultural subversives then infiltrated other social institutions, including the church, NGOs and civic societies. Um, I used to write letters on behalf of Amnesty International. They're now a cultural Marxist organisation. I think their founders must be turning in the grave. Um, once averted, otherwise legitimate social issues are used to engender conflict, and the outcome of each conflict is to move society a bit further to the left. And this is known as the Hegelian dialectic, because it was first described by the German philosopher Hegel. And this strategy of, of gradually of creating conflict, and then gradually each time moving things a little bit more in your direction, was adopted with great effectiveness by the gay liberation movement which use it with remarkable cynicism. And I have an analysis of that on my blog, which if it interests you, I'll give you the details of. So, for example, campaigns for women's rights became an attack on motherhood. 
the personal and social difficulties experienced by a very small number of genuinely transgender individuals became a reason to teach primary school children that there's no such thing as gender. And the desire of some homosexual people to have their relationships recognised has become a no-holds-barred assault on religious freedom. Environmental concerns became a reason to advocate deindustrialization, one-world government and the abolition of private property, and I refer you to Agenda 21, which didn't come out of the Green Movement I was a part of, by the way. Um, that came totally out of left field at the time. We kind of scratched our heads and went, what's this? <laughs> Just for the record. <clears throat> um, in this way, legitimate issues are concerns we, we used to weaken society. Cultural Marxists of the era were greatly assisted by the Soviet Union. And I think this is worth mentioning. During the Cold War in the period roughly 1960 to 1990, and I, get, I got this from a lecture by a gentleman called Yuri Bezmanov, whose uh, cover name in the West was Thomas Schumann. He's a KGB officer and an expert in cultural subversion. And he defected. He was working in India, and he defected. And his lecture in 1984 is still on YouTube, and I, I recommend uh, watching the full hour of that lecture. But he said that 85% of the budget of the KGB was spent not on traditional espionage but on cultural subversion. And he, went, he goes through in great detail the process of transitioning a society, um, which I don't have time to go through here. But the KGB were very actively behind and involved with um, a lot of the local communists who were infiltrating the uh, community organisations at the time and trained the new leaders who trained the people who are now running those organisations. Um, so the KGB, you know, wanted to create the revolution. Social progressives, on the, the other hand, were and are animated by this woolly notion of a fairer and better society in which patriarchy and capitalism would be tamed or extinguished. And I speak of people that I know and love. Uh, the KGB regarded progressives as useful idiots, that's their term, who they manipulated for their own purposes. And the KGB actually kept kill lists of the same progressives who would be shot once the Marxist-Leninist state was established because troublemakers would not be welcome anymore. <laughs> By the time the Russian people finally overthrew the Soviet Union and sacked the KGB in 1990, the process of demoralisation in the West was already well established. The students of Marquis and Adorno and their disciples were now in key positions in government, the media and academia with deep roots in the social democratic parties of the West. So in 1990, the world drew a collective sigh of relief and I imagined, and many of us imagined, that communism was dead. Perhaps we forgot that communism had been through existential crisis before. For cultural Marxists, this was old news. They simply dusted off their Gramsci and targeted the women's movement, the environmental movement and the gay movement for subversion. They even found a new financial sponsor in George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Um, Soros is a Hungarian Jew, a former Nazi collaborator and profiteer, who funds the US Democratic Party and at least 200 culturally subversive leftist organisations in Europe, and he's facilitating the Islamic invasion of Europe. 
Um, he and his organisations are illegal in his native Hungary and in Russia, which if you join some dots there becomes very interesting very quickly. Thus, when a normal citizen wakes up and finds that their young children are being taught homosexuality in school, political parties are hostile or indifferent to their values, and stating evident truths is illegal, and they should not be surprised. This is merely the opening stages of the process of demoralisation, which originated with Gramsci in the Frankfurt School, was described by critical theory, was weaponised by the KGB and the cultural Marxists, and is carried on by the current generation of useful idiots who prefer to call themselves social justice warriors. Now, these strategies did not succeed by chance. Communism has always been a top-down, not a bottom-up movement. No one's there. There's never been a popular communist revolution. That's a myth. Communism has always been imposed. Marxists understand that a couple of hundred people in the right positions determine the cultural direction of a society. Now, interestingly, the same observation has been made by theologians. Hasselgrave and Chance... Uh, chance, have noted that culture is directed by those who influence what they call the seven cultural mountains. And the seven cultural mountains are business, government, media, arts and entertainment, education, the family and religion. Other theologians have added science and technology. Hesselgrove notes, and this is a quote, it takes less than 3 to 5% of those operating at the tops of the cultural mountains to actually shift the values represented on that mountain. Mountains are controlled by a small percentage of leaders and networks. In sum, between 150 and 3,000 people frame the major contours of all world civilizations. Clearly, the transformations were top down. Whoever captures this high ground determines the fate of society. And unfortunately, while the left was strategic in targeting this high ground, and so is Islam, by the way, the church instead focused its efforts on the masses, on its own internal conflicts, and brought into the light that its mission was charitable, whereas seeking strategic influence somehow crosses an invisible line between church and state. Yet it's by capturing this high ground that we fulfil the great commission to disciple all nations that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. Uh, Edward Arthur says that this transformation of culture is part of the outflowing impetus of God's grace. Theologian Linda Cope has observed that God, after all, is the Lord of justice. He's King of kings. He's the Lord of economics. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the Lord of the family. He's our Father. He's the Lord of science and technology because he's the creator God. He's Lord of communication because he is the living word. He's the Lord of arts and beauty. He's the potter. And he's the Lord of education. He's the great teacher. And in this way, Jesus reconciles all things to himself. The key difference is that while conservatives on the seven mountains put up scant resistance, the left who now occupy those mountains will fight. And that's because the left understand that this is an existential struggle. The culture wars are not about who gets more of what they want in terms of social policy. 
but rather about where the Western civilization survives. And in this sense, the left have become cultural terrorists. In their mind, Christianity must be plucked out by the roots by any means necessary. Any ground given will be taken. Any compromise is really a short-term truce. All overtures to tolerance are merely smokescreens, for repressive tolerance leaves no room for diversity. They will viciously defend the high ground. And after all, if you truly believe that paradise lies just on the other side of the cultural revolution, where all will be made good, what would you not do to get us there? What lies would you not tell? How easily could you justify your crimes? And if the only thing preventing paradise is a handful of evil, selfish conservatives, what would you not do to get rid of them? And I think with the recent LGBT campaign really put that uh, on show. So let's go back to Alinsky for a moment. Alinsky was a leftist activist, mentor to, and lifelong friend of Hillary Rodham Clinton. And this is a quote from his book in which he advises activists in how to treat people who oppose them. Quote, your target is not a person with feelings, but the embodiment of evil. Mock them, criticize them, bait them, draw them out, accuse them, make them appear as outside the realm of people one listens to or takes seriously. Attribute nothing good to them. Amplify their errors, ignore their successes, imply that they somehow threaten everything we all hold dear. Attack their circle of influence. Go after the people they love, go after their kids, destroy them. Now, if that doesn't describe the current campaign against the US president, I don't know what does. It's good. This talk is going to get more positive in a minute, by the way. <laughs> when the social left look at the church, they see a decaying institution that is demoralised, divided, ageing and unwilling to do what is required to survive, let alone win. They know that if we keep doing what we are doing and they keep doing what they are doing, they will win and we will lose. And they've told me that. Okay, so in revision, there's nothing natural or inevitable about the destruction of Christianity in the West. We face an implacable enemy. We are in an existential struggle, even if we didn't choose it. And if we keep doing business as usual, defeat is guaranteed. So let's talk constructively about what can be done. Firstly, we need to understand that we've lost 40 years and it will take two generations to undo the damage, so there's no time to lose. Secondly, if we only respond to whatever the latest lunacy is from the left, we will also lose. That's been a losing strategy for 50 years because they'll simply move the goalposts. And anyone who's done any boxing or any martial arts will understand this very easily. If you stand there and do this and the other guy's dancing around you, you won't last very long. Um, there are four winning strategies that we can use. And the first one is to create new language. Anyone wishing to create social change develops new language as a vehicle for change. Marxists weaponised language in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In recent times, the Occupy Wall Street movement gave us the concept of the 1%, which is a valid concept, by the way. 
The alt-right gave us the term globalist. Libertarians gave us the terms deep state and fake news. And joining these concepts, Steve Bannon was able to create a language and a campaign that brought Donald Trump, of all people, into the White House. I worked with key figures in the environmental movement in Australia in the 1990s, and that movement was strategic with the use of language. The world's largest intact temperate rainforest still exists in Tasmania today because we gave it a name, and we called it the Tarkine. So I believe we must give cultural Marxism a name that isn't cultural Marxism. Uh, and I suggest calling it the anti-Western agenda. This term is inclusive, it's accurate, and it provokes inquiry. And since we are all Western, it includes all of us, left and right, black and white, gay and straight, men and women, etc. It suggests the question, if there is an anti-Western agenda, what is it? And a further question, what is the West? And both questions can be answered constructively and shift the discussion to our intellectual territory. The term enables us to name up the multi-point strategy to destroy the West, and it cuts through the groupthink and doublespeak of whatever issue is being exploited at the time to expose uh, the underlying agenda. The term anti-Western agenda should be used for every discussion pertaining. For example, mass immigration and open borders is part of the anti-Western agenda to destabilise Western societies. You don't have to agree with me, by the way. These are illustrations of how we can use language. Section 18C is part of the anti-Western agenda to shut down criticism of policies that damage society. Gay marriage is part of the anti-Western agenda to destroy the family by concreting the idea that motherhood and fatherhood are not different or necessary for raising children. Restrictions of freedom of conscience that follow gay marriage are part of the anti-Western agenda since faith is a foundational part of our civilization. Abortion to term or restrictions on professional or academic freedom regarding abortion advice are part of the anti-Western agenda, namely to reduce reproductive rights in order to replace the current population with non-Western migrants. This is, over time, a form of cultural and ethnic genocide. I think we need to start saying things like that. Um, when the question, what is the anti-Western agenda, is asked, say there is a long-term strategy to destroy the West. Now, the anti-Western agenda is promoted by who? By the false establishment. The false establishment is anyone in authority that wants you to hate your country, your culture, your race, your gender, your faith, or your family. I'll say that again, I think. The false establishment is anyone in authority that wants you to hate your country, your culture, your race, your gender, your faith, or your family. And you can really just sort of continue this on. The false establishment promotes an anti-child agenda and an anti-youth agenda, and an anti-motherhood agenda. And since this is new language, you'll be asked to explain what you mean. So you can say things like, the anti-child agenda seeks to harm children by alienating them from their biological gender and from their parents. The anti-youth agenda seeks to harm youth by stealing their gender, 
cultural and national identity. The anti-motherhood agenda seeks to denigrate motherhood as a profession and a calling. So strategy one, new language. Strategy two, attack legitimacy. Having named up the anti-Western agenda, we need to attack its legitimacy on all fronts. And this approach has been used with considerable success by the Trump party in the United States. And note the counter-attack on Trump's legitimacy from social Marxists. Despite Trump winning a free and fair election by a clear margin, they do these strategies because they work. Our approach needs to be apolitical, and it's very simple. When confronted with something that conflicts with your values, denies legitimacy. It may be a law, an institution, a program, a statement, or an organisation. If that's why it has no legitimacy, say it's part of the anti-Western agenda and it's being promoted by the false establishment. <laughs> Constantly attack legitimacy. Because the legitimacy is just assumed. And when you attack it, it forces people to think. Strategy three, and this is where my heart is as a policy analyst, solve the problems that confront the seven mountains. The world is desperate for answers, and by finding them, we are well placed to take the seven mountains. I see a real opportunity here because at the moment the left and the right are doing an exceptionally good job of confessing one another's sins. They're doing an exceptionally bad job of making the world a better place. <laughs> Um, and the good news is that over the last 25 years or so, most of the intellectual work has been done to solve pretty much all of the policy problems that we have. We actually don't need to reinvent the wheel. For example, in this country, the Productivity Commission, um, the Australia Institute, the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Henry Tax Review, half a dozen reviews into defence and many other sources go into considerable detail on how to solve a huge range of policy issues and it behoves us if we're going to go into the political space to become acquainted with some of that material. I think there's a real challenge in moving beyond sort of broad value statements to actually getting down with how you're going to solve this problem. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the parties across the political spectrum actually are quite thin. We need to be on the front foot with answers rather than on the back foot with opposition. And I suggest that the Safe Schools program is really our failure because we didn't promote a comprehensive and non-harmful sex education program. And it's now up to us to come up with a constructive, evidence-based, safer schools program to replace it. It's simply not good enough to bash the Safe Schools program. Um, and we're not going to win that way. We, we have to come up with a better alternative and say, so why would you put up with that nonsense when you can have this? And strategy four, reach out to youth. Marxists have always understood that young recruits are best in a long attritional war. The KGB understood that ages 15 to 25 were the key, since that is when identity and worldview are formed. And we likewise need an intergenerational strategy for the same reasons. I suggest the ages are probably now 12 to 20, but 
still young. And the message needs to be simple, visual and explicit. And it goes something like this. You are part of something great, a bigger story. Western countries, with all their problems, are still the most prosperous and free of all countries. There is a reason millions of people are trying to get into Western countries. Westerners are not fleeing to Islamic or African countries. You're part of a great story, and you are a man or a woman, and you come from a family, and that family has a name. And chances are one day you too will form a family and have children of your own, and they too will become part of this story. So if someone wants you to hate your people, your culture, your country or your family, don't listen to them. There are too many exciting things to do. Now delivery modes will change, but the platform at this time is clearly social media. And in time we need to create a youth student movement around these concepts that will develop its own momentum and foster its own leaders. And that is happening to some degree in the United States. I don't see it happening at the moment in Australia. If I could just end this presentation uh, with an, a story which you might have heard about the street corner communist and the street corner preacher. And it was knock-off time at the factory and the workers were shuffling home. And on one side, the street corner communist got up on his soapbox and he said, Listen, men, communism will put a new suit on every man. I thought, that's good. They all turned around. And on the other side of the street, the street corner preacher got up on his soapbox and he said, Listen, Jesus will put a new man into every suit. <laughs> and we now know that the first proposition is false. Communism will not put a new suit on every man. It will take the suit off the man and give it to the Politburo. But the second proposition is still true. Jesus will put a new person into any suit of clothes. And that foundational need cannot be met by anyone other than Jesus Christ. And that, that's the end of my talk. That was Eric Peacock with The Why and How of Defeating Cultural Marxism. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium on the theme A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.